All right. Okay. You ready? Let's go. He's off the racing line, and he's on the marbles. This isn't good. Oh, that is not good. Oh, no! On the marbles, on, on the marbles, on the marbles, on, on the marbles, on the marbles, on, on the marbles, on the marbles, on, on the marbles. This is a dedicated Formula One podcast brought to you by the most respected, keenest, and knowledgeable minds in motorsport racing. The mere fact you're listening to this suggests great sagacity on your part. You're in the right place at the right time. But of course, you already knew that. You can only really judge somebody on a piss up in a night out in Glasgow. <laughs> Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to On The Marbles. I am the person charged with today's hosting duties, Steve Jones. And with that, allow me to introduce to you another person who joins us via video conference call. A special person. He is a man, an avid cyclist, a frequent vocalist. He is a philanthropist, an amateur chiropodist. He's a pedestrian when he needs to be an equestrian when he's on a horse, a motorist in a car, and a Marxist when dealing with political and economical theory. He is, of course, Mr. David Marshall Coulthard. Welcome to the show, sir. May I call you DC? Well, of course. Why would we change after so many years? And even though we're connected via video technology, mm, mm, mm. I somehow feel you're all around me. Sure, sure. Capital, capital. How are you? You're looking fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, in the motherland. So, uh, I, of course, there are many other great countries available. Name Scot one. Well, outside of Scotland, nothing really coming to mind right now. <laughs> but um, Wales would be up there somewhere. Thank you for saying that, DC. What is it about Scotland that's kept you there away from being here with me in Hungary? What's that place got that Hungary hasn't got? Well, what it's got is a 12-year-old called Dayton who really connects with being up here and having travelled up after the British Grand Prix, um, I've realised that uh, this is a magical moment to be, you know, seeing a 12-year-old discover the countryside. So what I have done is tapped out of the Hungarian Grand Prix, allowing yet another Scotsman to come and join you, uh, the man that is so much bigger than his actual height, Alan McNish. Brilliant. And, um, and I will rejoin from, uh, I suppose, Belgian Grand Prix onwards. David Cole found that pulling out the daddy card. I respect that. I respect that greatly, DC. Now, let's talk to Bully. As some of our more avid listeners might know, I performed a poem about Silverstone in our last podcast. It wasn't easy for me to deliver it because... Well, the subject matter was deeply personal. Uh, as a group of bin men shouted at me recently, it took a lot of courage to make that much of a melt of myself. And thank you for taking the time to say that, you lovely men. Uh, not everyone has been so supportive, mind you. Uh, David, can I ask you a question? And please be honest. What is yes. it about my poetry that inspires such blind hate from our listeners? I, I simply cannot find the words to articulate what poem they're hearing because your words are stimulating, they are educational. I have been somewhat aroused whilst <laughs> listening to uh, you, the, the, the cunning linguist that you are, 
And I can, I can only imagine they're listening to it on a device that has a lot of interference mm. and it doesn't allow mm. the purity of your Welsh voice to carry the lyrics to their inner earlobe. But would you like to hear a few examples of the bilious rage I've had to endure over the last couple of weeks? And, and can, can I just preface this by saying, I'm not thin-skinned, okay? I realize I'm on TV. I expect a little bit of light ribbing from the public. Anyone who's had 20 years in the industry is gonna get it, and I take it with good cheer. You know, I, I, I don't let it get to me. I've lost count how many times someone has shouted across the street at me, burn in hell, or I hope a piano falls on you. It's funny, it's no big deal. You know, just a few days back, an old woman said to me in Boots as I was buying a packet of Nurofen, she said, have you tried taking 300 of those? <laughs> it's, it's no big deal. She's just having a laugh. Am I right, DC? Uh, absolutely, but it's fine. Yeah, let me ask you one thing, though. Let me ask you one very quickly. Has all of this barrage of hatred increased since you started promoting Halfords? No, it's lessened, actually. People prefer my work on the Halfords advert to my Formula One work, if anything. Well, I was wondering if you'd get me a mates rate in there because I've got some stuff I need to buy. I can sort you out with some cheap windscreen wipers if, uh, <laughs> if, if I'll help you out. No, listen, the, the, the truth is, I, the thing that gets me through the hate that I receive via the internet is I imagine people uh, tell Jake Humphrey they hate him everywhere he goes. I imagine people tell Peter Crouch that a circus somewhere is missing its lanky freak everywhere he goes. And I know they take it on the chin, because that's what superstars of our caliber do, DC. Me, Jake, and Peter were on the same level with equally successful podcasts, equally adored the length and breadth of this great nation. No one's going to argue against that. It's a given, okay? What I won't take on the chin is the frankly criminal things that have been leveled at me over the last fortnight. Listen to this from Doreen Kettering in Taunton. She writes, I hope they find your lifeless corpse locked in a fridge at a rubbish dump. <laughs> That's from Doreen, DC, and I checked her Twitter page. She's a grandmother and she volunteers as a Samaritan. Nice, real nice, Doreen. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> What's the matter with Doreen? I don't know. She's obviously insane. Uh, here's one from Mike Brook. I hope a one-armed man kills your entire family and you're framed for their murder. Now, I'm sure we all know that's pretty much what happened to Dr. Richard Kimball in The Fugitive. Doesn't make it any less horrifying, DC. No, no. I, I, I'm really starting to become troubled by the sort of hate mail you're getting. Well, get ready for this next one. Here's one from Jane Early. And this one is truly chilling because Jane has done her homework here, DC. She clearly knows I have two French bulldogs. She says, Steve, I pray before you can write another abomination, your Frenchies attack you and devour every major organ in your body. <laughs> well, you know what? The joke's on you, Jane, because their mouths and teeth are really small, so I'd have time to scrawl my next poem on my kitchen wall in my own blood. So I win. Truth is, this constant barrage of abuse is getting to me. I'm thinking about hanging up the old quill. But if you, David, my friend and colleague, tell me to keep going, to rise above the haters, follow my heart, I'll keep writing. DC, if, if you tell me to keep going, I'll, I'll do it for you. Sorry, I think his mic has dropped out here. Uh, I think we may have lost DC. 
No, no, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> ah, yeah. You, you, you should keep going. Follow your dreams. I, I, I knew I could rely on you. You, you really do lift me up. You know that. Okie smokey, I've given the car a walk around. All is good. The vehicle is in perfect working order, I think. Uh, I'm a little bit worried, full disclosure, like a flipping jabroni, I've forgotten to renew my driver's license. Also, I haven't had a chance to get the MOT done. The tax disc is out of date. I'm currently uninsured, and I might be a skosh still drunk from last night. All in all, this car is extremely illegal, and I should not be driving it. But on the marbles must be done. And that will be my defense if any police come sniffing around. As long as they don't look in the glove compartment because it's gonna be difficult to explain away a syringe full of Domestos, I'm sure we will be fine. Okay, DC's severed head is in an iPad on the passenger seat, mirror signal maneuver, and we're off. The first question from Fetty Lynch is as predictable as the sun rising in the morning. That Max and Lewis crash at Silverstone, racing incident or intentional infringement? How about it? Well, I don't believe for one moment it's intentional. I think it was a racing incident, but then you get into the, the question of, well, who was more to blame for that racing incident? Because clearly it takes two to tango. And had it been Lewis ramming up the back of Max, then he would be fully to blame. But clearly he didn't, he touched the rear. But in my opinion, as a racer who knows that corner, then you can't do uh, what Mercedes have tried to do, which is pull out a rule book on how an overtake should be um, carried out because you would need one of those for every single corner and every single racetrack. Hmm. Cops is a particular corner taken flat out and qualifying. That's not the case in the race. Of course, when you've got 100 kilograms of fuel and bottom line is it was Lewis's front wheel that came in contact with Max's rear wheel and therefore he has the lion's share of the blame in my opinion and that's clearly shared by the stewards who gave him a 10 second penalty. So maybe the real question is, was that too lenient when you factor in Verstappen's race was ruined and the resulting damage cost Red Bull apparently $1.8 million? Well, that's one of those things that becomes more of a question after the end of the Grand Prix when Lewis has you know, benefited from a safety car in terms of uh, you know, bringing everything a bit closer together, uh, then has gone on to drive brilliantly to win the Grand Prix. And then the question is, well, what position should he have finished in to make Red Bull happy and to make the Red Bull Max fans happy and the Mercedes fans happy? And I don't have an answer to that. You know, the stewards, I have to believe, apply what they think is the, the right penalty based on previous situations and scenarios. But of course, that does not take into account the damage in, in monetary terms and worth level that's been imposed on the Red Bull racing team. And it doesn't take into account the points gained uh, by the main rival to Max in the World Championship. So a little bit like we saw in Azerbaijan, where it was there for, for Lewis to take a big chunk of points, whether he won or not, and he ended up with nothing because of a mistake on, on his part. Here, he hasn't made any mistakes after uh, the issue, and he's gone on to take 25 points. Hmm. Yeah, you're right, a lot of variables. But just to play devil's avocado, I've seen this opinion a few times in the last couple of weeks. Yes, Hamilton drove an incredible race, but were his... Uh, messianic celebrations out on the grass, lacking in sportsmanship when you consider Max was in hospital at that point in time? 
Again, this is a very uh, complex subject because the show must go on. And I remember well, sadly, the, the situation in 94 where Roland Ratzenberger was tragically killed in, in, on the Saturday ahead of the, the main Grand Prix. And the race went on on the Sunday. And on the Sunday, Ayrton was, as we now know, killed during that Grand Prix. And that Grand Prix was concluded and there was a podium ceremony. And I don't recall whether there was champagne sprayed. Um, so I would need to look that up, Steve. But mm. the reality is, as you and I are speaking, there are people being born and there are people dying in their tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. I don't know the numbers around the globe. And although that's not on the field of play and it's not in uh, you know sport, I take view, I had this conversation with my mother when I started my Grand Prix career, that if I was ever killed during a Grand Prix, then I didn't want her to feel that my last moments were filled with fear and wishing I'd been somewhere else. Because my view was, you know, based on an accident I had, that the point up until the impact, I was doing what I loved to do and I was doing what I was trained to do, which was to try and minimize the accident. Hmm. So I think this is one of those really difficult subjects that depending on the individual, you will have a different opinion. But I think that if you looked uh, in the eye of all of the competitors in Formula One and ask them, should the show go on if there is a fatal incident? I have to believe that the majority would say yes, and I understand this is a controversial conversation, but I've got bad news for everybody. Life is dangerous. We all die in the end. And in this case, nobody was killed, thankfully. And in this case, there was a medical team that were keeping the FIA informed and in this case, if there was something that the FIA and Jean Todd, the president, was at Silverstone, if he felt there was something that was overreaching and, and wider, um, you know, wider reaching, sorry, than the Grand Prix that was taking place, I think that information would have been shared with Mercedes. I think it would have been shared with Lewis. And I think it would have been shared with the podium ceremony. That's what I believe. But I am totally open, Steve, to the fact that you may have a different point of view. Max clearly had a different point of view. And that is the wonderful thing about opinion. We, we depending on where we sit and in what experience we've got, we're, we are entitled to that opinion. Mm. Well, let's stick with this incident for a moment because Clive Stragley has been on asking, does anyone in their right mind believe Hamilton would crash into Max on purpose? I think it's worth saying out loud. I mean, I personally do not believe he would, but DC, in those close combat moments that 99% of us have no experience of. Have you ever come close to saying bollocks to it and considered smashing into a competitor? Never, 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 never. And I would put my hand on fire that Lewis would never have that thought. Yeah. As I believe Max would not have that thought. I think that what they are are two of the fastest naturally gifted racing drivers in the world. And when you come in that situation, as we've seen on a few occasions during the history of Formula One racing, when you have that level of brilliance, that level of determination, that level of you know, focus to, to achieve their ultimate goal, you will occasionally have an incident where they come together. There was enough room for both those cars to get through the corner. It was a set of circumstances from determined racing drivers that saw that not happen. 
Yeah, definitely a Max Verstappen came out worse from that transaction. Eric Walsh has a query. What's the fastest DC has ever hit the barrier? Is it as painful as it looks? I had a rear suspension failure at Valencia and when, and it was in a test in a McLaren. And the downside with rear suspension failure at 190 miles an hour, especially when it's on the outside wheel, is that the car will then sit down on the wooden plank, the rear wheel then rotated off the car, removing the rear wing. If you have no rear wing, you've lost most of your drag. If you've lost most of your drag, your deceleration is not really there. I then uh, touched the gravel and then I never touched the ground again until I hit the barrier and split the armco up to the front of um, the top of the nose box. That was a fairly abrupt um, deceleration not with the benefit of a tire barrier. I actually don't know what the G was because back then people just didn't really, you know, we didn't have G, you know, there would, there would be some sort of G sensor, but it, it wasn't a thing to really log how many G you pulled in a crash because we weren't dealing with concussion lights and the modern technology they have today. Mm. But in a long way to answer your question, I've never had a crash where I thought, ooh, that really hurt. I've had a couple of crashes where I was winded. That was one of them. But it's, it's actually no different to being, you know, rugby tackled by the fat kid when you're at primary school and you think, I wasn't even playing rugby at the time. I was just watching from the side. <laughs> but long hair got in the way and he thought you were a competitor. So it's like, it, that's my experience. But, you know, I, I broke a leg uh, in spa in the lower formulas and that hurt a lot more because... You know, your bone breaks and you're, you've got to go through the, the discomfort of realizing what's going on. Max was clearly winded, uh, but I think his crash in Monaco in Toro Rosso was probably a bigger G hit, if I'm not wrong. Mm. I did mention it to Christian on the day and he immediately shut me down. He was like, no, this crash was way worse than that. So I, I, oh. I'm really not sure what the, uh, the truth is there. But either way, both of them are crashes I would not like to be involved in. Christ, no. Any crash you can walk away from, is, is one of the better crashes. Hmm. Very good point. Uh, Coral Green is concerned by the sounds of it. Uh, we all enjoy the Christian and Toto bants. Uh, it's always had a smidge of pantomime about it, but after Silverstone, might their relationship have become genuinely toxic? What do you think, DC? I don't believe so. I think that they're both extremely competitive people at the top of their game. You know, Toto is off the back of multiple world championships. Christian has had that similar experience when Red Bull did four back-to-back -back double world titles. And they are professional and they are competitive. And that means they will use all of the tricks of the trade, everything that was in the sporting context of Formula One, to try and gain advantage. And the reality is they will sit in a sporting director or team principal or whatever the, the official title you want to give, meetings to discuss the future of the sport. And they won't at any point discuss what's been happening during the, the current season. They'll be looking at bigger picture. They'll be looking at delivering shareholder value because let's remind ourselves, sport is business and the business of sport is big business. And they have a duty of care to their shareholders and their partners. And that goes beyond the you know, it's not a couple of boxers get trash talking each other before you get in the ring, because actually their shareholder value is d directly to how hard they can push a uh, punch and, and, and how hard they can take a punch. So 
in a nutshell, you're not worried for that relationship? I think they will spend more time together socially once they're no longer running Formula One teams because they'll know each other's tells. You know, I guess it's, I'm not a poker player, but if you're at the top of your game in poker and you find yourself competing in the big tournaments against the same few men and women, you learn their tells. Mm. You learn, you know, they, they have to be brilliant actors as well as brilliant poker players to not have mannerisms that over time you learn. And, and uh, if, uh, you know, you learn to appreciate the brilliance of your competitors and you, you learn to try and exploit their weaknesses. That's interesting because obviously it's Max versus uh, Lewis. So you're saying to a degree it's Toto versus Christian. They're having their own little battle, their own, you know, race, if you like, over the course of a weekend. A hundred percent. Right now, they're the captains of the ships hmm. and the captain decides the direction. Of course, they're not designing the cars. They're not, you know, hiring the, the, the young university students. You know, they've got a team. They've got a thousand people that work for them. Uh, to, to bring all this together, but they set the direction, they address the staff, they motivate the troops, they make the key hirings. So if they are not 100% motivated, they would have been found out by now. Hmm. They, they're both highly motivated, want to win people, and that is personal. Well, here's a question in regards to the direction of the Red Bull ship. Dean Stockacre wants to know, this is a big one. Are Red Bull still favourites for the titles this year? They have to still be favourites because they've been on a little bit of a roll. Uh, going into the season, the favourite was Mercedes because they were coming off the back of a bit of a roll. Things can change quickly, as we've seen in Azerbaijan. You know, both the main contenders got no points, as we saw in Silverstone. Lewis, despite the penalty, came back and, and won that Grand Prix. So things can chop and change. And in the case of Nico Rosberg, who I think most would agree isn't as good an all-round driver as Lewis Hamilton, he was able to put together a one-season campaign that won him the championship. Mm. So things can evolve and change, and, and sometimes you don't always get what would be considered the, 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 the expected result. But um, I, I still think that Max is hungry, young, and focused, and can only get stronger as he gains more experience, where I think Lewis is as strong as he's going to get, which is brilliant. But I, I, I struggle to see how Lewis can get any better than his brilliant best. Jem hmm. Davy has been on. It was fantastic to see Charles back on the podium, but I was a little worried to hear Mattia Bonotto post-race admit he had no clue how they did it. How can this be? Well, I have this belief based on my experience of Formula One, and I'm not an engineer, and, uh, and I'm lacking in many areas, that is for sure. But I developed a theory that when, to, to sort of play on a, I think it's a Bill Gates, Gates um, expression uh, or, 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 or quote, where he said that success is a lousy teacher. It makes people think they can't fail. So before I came across that quote, I, I developed this understanding that when people are winning, everybody starts to convince themselves, well, of course we're winning because we're, you know, we're the best and we've made all these decisions. And of course, if we've made all these decisions and we're the best, we should be winning. Those same group of people, when you're not winning, 
go, uh, well, we, we've, we've, um, we've developed a theory as to where we're lacking in performance and we're working in that area. Now, if they were as good as they believed they were at the point when they were winning, they would never, ever drop off that pedestal of winning. The reason they drop off that pedestal of winning is it's so complex, Formula One, the aerodynamics, the vehicle dynamics, the tires, track temperature, driver personalities, driver moods, that to get everything aligned and performing is almost not a magic, of course not, because it's by human endeavor, but it, it, there's just certain areas that, that are just down to the racing gods, mm. is my belief. And as true as Mercedes dominated for, for so many years, it was always coming that they would stop dominating. They've got all of the main people there, mm. but things change because they do. Nothing stands still. Everything evolves. And it's not because Red Bull are working harder now than they were two years ago. It's that they've got more of the tools at their disposal to develop a winning car. The engine performance has picked up. That's been a huge area of weakness for them in the last couple of years. Now that's been addressed. They were always developing and building a good race car. And then, you know, Mercedes are saying, well, the regulations changed and it's hampered us. But what part of the Mercedes machine is not able to understand a change in regulations that enabled others to understand? You know what I mean? People just make excuses when it suits them. And the reality is it's very difficult to, to build up that level of performance. Engineering and science will take you so far. And the last little bit is just that cannot be explained. And, and I'm struggling to explain to you properly, but why is Ronaldo, other than the fact he's really fit and really hungry, so consistently such a great player? Because there'll be someone else that can kick a ball as well as him and maybe doesn't have the six pack or maybe has a seven pack, but just isn't quite as good. It's because nature sometimes just deliver something a wee bit better to, to mm. some individuals. Yeah, it's a, it's a story of the intangibles, isn't it? It's that quality you can't quite put your finger on. But to bring it back to Ferrari and their success at Silverstone, you know, getting the silver for Charles Leclerc there, when a team principal, Mattia Bonotto in this instance, says, yeah, we're not really sure how we did that. Do, do you think that's a little too honest? Would it have been better if he'd said, yeah, we, we've put some systems in place and their performance, so we're very excited. I mean, do you know what I'm saying? How, what, what would you have done in that situation? Would you have been that forthright? I love honesty. I really do. And it's one of the most difficult things for people, for humans, whether you're sporting or not, to be 100% honest. How difficult is it to tell your friend who looks a little bit not good in those trousers that they don't look good? How do I look? Oh, you look great. Oh, thank you. It's so difficult on every level to yeah. be honest that if you are just honest, then that, that, that's, I think, empowering. It's, I don't know. I really don't know. But let's use what we now have as data from that event to use the data to try and understand at the moment he was asked the question, he didn't have an answer. Why bullshit hmm. if, you, if you simply don't know? Fair play. Uh, Bill Brookland is saying... Great, by the way, in that T-shirt. Beg your pardon? You look great in that T-shirt, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Bill Brookland is saying, I loved your race day opener with Tom Cruise. What was the, stup what was the superstar like in person? You go first, DC. Incredibly soft hands. 
<laughs> now, I know you're fibbing there because not at any point were you allowed to touch his hand in that fashion. It was fist bumps all day long, DC. So you don't know what you're talking about there. I shook his hand when we said goodbye on the really? start finish. You didn't yeah. shake my hand. No, because I know where your hands have been. <laughs> no, he didn't shake my hand. And he doesn't know where my hands have been. <laughs> <laughs> I, he gave me a handshake. Look, look, he was quite the guy, wasn't he? Let's, let's be honest, the consummate professional. He was definitely a man who knows what he wants from a piece. You know, he, he was very serious about getting it nailed. You know, yet we still had a lot of fun, didn't we? It was, it was an incredible work ethic to be around. You know, practice, practice, practice before we execute. It, it, it was very impressive to see him in action, wasn't it? He is inspirational. He is as lovely as he comes across. And I, I, I was just really, really thrilled that a lot of the, the lines and a lot of the script that I'd written for the day, he wanted to include in the final edit. And what, it's, well, you, you were know, talking about honesty earlier. Now you're making up the fact you were writing lines for the script. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that line about, you know, the, the volleyball scene, the beach volleyball scene, I've seen that like a thousand times. Was... That was my line. <laughs> You're such a bastard. That was my line. Who said it? I think I said it first. So it was <laughs> <Yes>. my line. <laughs> you were so full of it, DC. But thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, it was amazing that the lines I wrote were coming out of Tom Cruise's mouth. It was amazing. He loved to work. He loved your work. Well, thank you for saying that, unless you're bullshitting again. He was... No, no, honestly, he, he, he absolutely... We both know, and this is, this is being entirely serious and sincere, that he loved that line and laughed that Tom Cruise laugh <laughs> yeah. at least three times, if not more. Yeah. And a Tom Cruise laugh does not last five seconds. <laughs> it goes for a good minute or so, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Lovely, lovely guy, you know, and, and one of the things that really impressed me about him is he gave everybody their Tom Cruise moment. I'm sure you remember, DC, you know, we, we had a crew of, I would say, around 40 talented men and women. And at the end of the shoot, Tom Cruise had a picture taken with every one of them individually. You know, he's aware of the effect he has on a room. And, and as I said, he gave them their Tom Cruise moment, every single person. And that really impressed me. Yeah, uh, legends, gentlemen, fantastic, uh, life-enhancing moment. Yeah, hell of a day, hell of a day. Uh, Sunita Range says the following, I've watched the Max taxi prank a thousand times since race day. Will we see Ray, the taxi driver, again? Um, I, I think Ray was uh, a one and done. You know, the cat's out of the bag, as it were, but we shall remember him fondly. You know, he served his purpose, he was fun, and he showed Max Verstappen in a new light. But then again, DC, saying that, I can't imagine Kimi Raikkonen watching TV, so you never know, Ray may ride again. I think if you're ever doing a prank on, on Kimi, it should be Peter the pilot, and you can pick ah. him up from his local airport in Zurich, and instead of landing in, I don't know, Barcelona, you, you land in Madrid, and then go, oh, so sorry, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't have my pilot's license, but how hard could it be flying a plane? Ah, 
can't be that. You just need to pull back when you get to the end of the runway and just push it down when you need to land somewhere. <laughs> it's on. We'll do that, DC. Uh, Harley is here to voice a concern. Ralph has a bleak outlook for the aforementioned Finn. Has the bell finally toned for Kimmy? He seems... Oh, my, it's the worst word you can say in the same sentence as an F1 driver. He seems slow. DC? I think Kimi has had a brilliant career. At his peak, he was one of the fastest drivers in the sport. I think that history would tell us, irrespective of your love of the man, that there's a time to say enough is enough. And I don't see many racing drivers in their 40s getting better. I don't see many in their late 30s getting better. And if Kimi wants to race in Formula One and someone will give him a drive, then of course he should keep going. It's his decision. Um, but in terms of delivering the sort of results we've seen from him in the past, I don't believe he'll ever get a winning car again. We know Kimi's a pretty laid back guy. Do you think he has made his peace with the fact he is getting slower? Do you think, you know, he's so laid back, he doesn't even really care? It's like, whatever he, you know, whatever he says. Well, I, I don't have the, the, the information to, to say he's getting slower. I definitely don't think he's getting better. And in terms of overall, his presence on the racetrack and his effectiveness in terms of maximizing the machinery that the team give him has peaked. Hmm. I think that his teammate uh, initially was behind him in outright pace. And I think uh, the stats would show now, and I know this, the statistics can, can sometimes be skewed, but I think the stats right now would show that Giovinazzi has been more, more often than not out-qualifying Kimi this year, yeah. Yeah. which would suggest that either Kimi is not comfortable with his car, he's unlucky in qualifying, or his time has come and gone. Or there's another option, Giovinazzi is brilliant. What about that option? That, that, you know, I would love that because the youth should be hopefully the same, if not better, and the old hands. You know, it's called evolution. Hmm. As human beings, we should always want records to be beaten. We should always want things to, you know, human endeavor, human potential to improve across sport, across everyday life. Anyone who doesn't dream of that and want that is a stick in the mud. More on this subject, Harley is here to voice a concern after watching Norris own Ricardo at race 10 in Silverstone. Is it now official that Norris is a better driver than Daniel? What is official is that Lando Norris has arrived in Formula One with an incredibly high level of success. He has worked hard and he's continued to improve, and he's gone from a rookie Formula One driver to now a well-established, consistent, highly performing race driver, which, as you know, when I suggested to him in Imola that I was surprised that he'd made Daniel look like he was a rookie, he was a little bit, you know, jokey, disappointed. But I also think the arrogance of youth had him kind of go, well, what do you, what do you know? Um, old man. So rather than <laughs> taking a compliment, he, he, he took the negative. But in actual fact, it was a compliment. And I have nothing but admiration for his achievements on track. 
I am concerned for Daniel because I also have a great deal of respect for Daniel and what he's achieved within Formula One. But if this continues across across the entire season, Daniel will no longer be in the sights of other top teams because the, you know naturally they'll always look for who's leading the team in terms of results. Yeah. Um, here's one from Gurdip. P16 for Perez at Silverstone, eighth in Austria, 12th in Styria. Is he having a bit of a wobble? Sergio is, it was great that he got that victory out of the unusual circumstances in Azerbaijan. He has been fulfilling the role of bringing back points more often than who he replaced. But the gap between him and Max and outright speed and the little wobbles in some of the races is worrying. There's no mm. question about it. He's old enough and experienced enough to know that. And if anyone can pull themselves out of that situation, then he will be able to use that experience to do so. But there does seem to be a really, you know, uncomfortable. It's a really uncomfortable place being a teammate to Max Verstappen. Oh God! It seems so much more uncomfortable than being the teammate to Lewis. Mm. And that's got nothing to do with Max as an individual because he's a very straightforward, friendly individual. It just seems to be that he's able to drive that car in a way that his teammates struggle yeah. to do. Yeah, Max Verstappen's teammate. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. June Tipworth is a very curious woman, and I respect that. Here she is. Uh, at the end of your Silverstone coverage, you asked DC to tell us viewers who he was showing around in his smart duds. He got all coy. I thought he might be a little less tight-lipped on the marbles. Yes, DC, he was uh, all smart in a shirt and tie because he was showing around royalty earlier in the day. On air, I asked him to tell everyone who exactly they were. Now, it seemed that he was exercising discretion, but that's not quite the truth, is it, DC? Well, look, I'm all for the truth. And the truth was at that moment in time, I couldn't remember the name of the prince that I was showing around, but I do remember how it was Prince Edward <laughs> and Sophie. Uh, and, but I, what are they, the, the Earl and wherever of Sussex? <laughs> I'm sorry, my, I'm not really up to speed on, on all that. And at the, that moment, I just didn't want to say something wrong. What were they like? Nice people? They were lovely people. They, they actually, you know what they seemed like? Go on. Human beings. Really? Yeah. They, they didn't seem like lizards inside a human skin body. No, I didn't see whether they, uh, you know, I didn't have a chance to cut them, so I don't know if they had red or blue blood, <laughs> but they, they see, I'm going to go with they had red blood. So all in all, a wonderful experience hanging out with royalty, yeah? Well, I walked the length of the Formula One paddock making some polite conversation, so... You can only really judge somebody on a piss-up and a night out in Glasgow. Ah, <laughs> uh, DC. And that is all she wrote. Thank you, David Coulthard. I think I speak for myself and all our listeners when I say suckling at the milky teat of your vast F1 knowledge is a privilege we don't take lightly. Listeners, well, let's be honest, you're more like family to me now. I know if I ever need a couch to crash on, if I ever need to borrow some money, if I need an alibi because I'm implicated in the murder of my entire family, you will be there for me. Bless you. All that remains to be said is, may the downforce be with you. And may all you... 
Oh shit, 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 Rosas, Rosas. Christ. Uh, shall I just put my foot down? No, pull in, you media. Yeah, yeah, of course, you're right. Um, okay, I'm, I'm pulling in. I'm bringing the car to a stop. All right, here he comes. Be cool, be cool, be cool. I'll handle this. Hello, officer. Going a bit fast there, sir. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. Must have been a bit distracted recording our podcast. Uh, you're driving a car and recording a podcast at the same time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> is that illegal? Mm, not really sure, actually. What podcast is it? On the Marbles. Never heard of it. What's it about? <laughs> um, F1. Do you uh, watch Formula One? No. Too loud, and they just go around in circles, don't they? No, no, not really. Um, you, you should give it a go, and then maybe listen to On the Marbles. Only podcast worth my time is Jake Humphrey's High Performance Podcast. Oh, get f***ed. Step out of the car, please, sir. 